This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. And of course, Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who as usual is calling in from London. On this episode of EAH, we are joined by Andrew Clinton, co-founder and CEO of Haringa Energy. Haringa is headquartered in New Zealand, where they are building clean hydrogen production projects using renewable energy to displace the use of fossil fuels for transport and industrial feedstocks across New Zealand. We are delighted to have Andrew with us today to speak about how Haringa are using hydrogen to change the energy and carbon landscape of New Zealand. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. Okay, Patrick. We're going to make this a lightning fast intro. Chris is going to join us afterwards. He's not going to be around for the actual substance. We can come back to the fact that Chris has abandoned us once again, but we'll the subject for another time. We've got Andrew Clement calling in from Haringa uh, in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a chance to do a lightning fast intro of Haringa, if you can. Fire away, Patrick. Challenge accepted. Um, All right. So Haringa... Very interesting company based out of New Zealand. Obviously, New Zealand, uh, an interesting geographic location for us to, to be talking to Andrew about. You know, uh, I think Haringa specifically are, are developing a nationwide refueling uh, system. Particularly interesting. I think they're going to do that over a couple of phases. But obviously, for the deployment of FCVs, that's going to be a critical enabler. Also, what's interesting is they're developing the hydrogen systems for a uh, ammonia production facility Um uh, I think it's Kapuni. Going to be very, very interesting to see how that how that fits in, and then also, you know, they're preparing for um, you know some level of hydrogen export potential and, and looking to kind of build out their capacity across all these streams. You know, obviously, New Zealand not necessarily a huge market all on its own, but you know, a very promising one if you can can develop all these systems, build that that, that expertise, and and then build from there. So, uh, really looking forward to talking to the other Andrew. Uh, about this topic in a, in a few short minutes. <laughs> that's yeah. That's I. I hear that's how they refer to him. See, Patrick, without Chris around, we're a well-oiled machine. Challenge yeah. accepted, met, company introduced, Andrew prepped. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe, and the only thing we... we've got left to do is we're going to have to wait to talk about COP with Chris. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I can see Andrew's waiting for us, so let's get him on the line. So Andrew, thanks thanks for joining us today. Um, I think just to kick off, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Haranga and what you do? Yeah, so thanks, Patrick. So I guess really Haranga is a company we formed, uh, gosh, coming out five years ago. Uh, but after a long time thinking about this and how can we how can we really crank uh, decarbonisation up a gear really as, as we're coming out of you know. Uh, last Paris Agreement and so on, and starting to see the things move. So we decided to apply, if you like, our business skills to this, to the commercialisation pathway for hydrogen and, 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 and quite quickly identified green hydrogen was definitely an area we can have a big impact. And so we are developing um, green hydrogen value chains um, in New Zealand and, and into the region. Uh, a lot of that's about partnering through that value chain, actually enabling that chicken and egg to come together. So all the way from where we're generating electricity, renewable electricity, 
producing green hydrogen through to actually activating the uh, the market, such as heavy transport, industrial feedstocks. So working right through that as a company, uh, an owner, developer, if you like, but very much in partnership and joint ventures and so on. Through that, and also working with the sec- <coughs> working with the sector, industry, uh, suppliers, and so on in, in partnership to unlock that. Yeah. So, so Andrew, uh, if you could walk us through a little bit, sort of describe for us and our listeners what is the business model that Haringa is looking at, and, and what markets in particular are you guys focused on? Yeah. So, look, our model is to sell hydrogen at the end of the day, and part of that is to produce hydrogen to produce that green hydrogen green. But a big part of that is we need to get that market. And so, for example, our model, we've got a, a fuel lease, a wet lease on, on heavy trucks that are coming into the, into the country, into New Zealand in the next, uh, in the next 12 months. And those trucks, we're working with a lease, a major lease operator. So they have a big part of the, the trucking market in New Zealand. And so our fuel together with the trucks come in on a wet lease and that unlocks both the, access to the trucks on scale, but also helps tie us back to our, our offtake. And so that's allowed us to make the investment in the infrastructure. So fundamentally, we're creating and building the infrastructure and arranging offtake agreements and, and uh, to, to have a market. And that's also we're dealing with heavy transport, so the trucking, buses, uh, a number of other areas we're looking at a, a marine and so on as we expand, but really focus on that heavy transport sector, which can have a big impact. And also a second area is in is in industrial chemicals, which are ready now to start to take green hydrogen. So, so maybe maybe to to zoom back out a little bit, you know, what what what's the hydrogen opportunity in New Zealand, and, and kind of I suppose what what role do you kind of see for it? You know, hydrogen uh, for the entire country, like like. What is the, the the scale we're looking at here potentially, you know, in your grand vision? I think New Zealand's a really good example of a country that's got excess renewables. It's got a lot of renewable potential, I probably should say. At the moment, obviously, our, our, our energy system, our electricity system is built very much in that domestic supply demand with a little bit of uh, electricity being exported in the form of, of green aluminium. But really what we can see is that it's the potential. New Zealand's got this plethora of of energy sources so from uh wind resource hydro resource that's already been well and truly pre-invested in uh geothermal resources solar resources all of these things uh really culminate to provide that huge renewable energy potential so there's a big potential sitting on one side at the same time the other thing that new zealand brings is it's a whole oecd ecosystem right so it is in itself its own market. And interestingly, when we take the step back about energy, um, it's a really important piece. New Zealand, we're very proud of having a high renewable electricity proportion in our grid, and that's, I think, between 80 and 85% of the grid is running on renewable electricity. But really, it's only 40% of the energy system, and so there's a long way to go. And when we think about the energy system, it's an enormous, uh, it's an enormous system. It's an enormous industry. So even within one country that might only have a population of 5 million people, there are whole business models and whole commercialisation pathways that can create the scale that hydrogen needs. It's a really interesting thing. Size isn't necessarily about being bigger, but it's about having the the ecosystem that you can thrive in and, and they can grow in. So I think that's the New Zealand is both, it's got the renewable energy to really drive green hydrogen but it's also got the ecosystem and the and the, the way that the country works, the infrastructure, the connectivity to actually start to create these new. Uh, we're often calling them you know hygiene economies, but really it's a, it's electricity hygiene economies um, that where the two work hand in hand to create that. So that's a real really unique piece about New Zealand, and people have seen that. So that's with us being able to get these these trucks. So we've got uh, around twenty five heavy trucks coming in next year. People see what we can do here. We're, we're uh, creating the refuelling network. We'll talk a bit more about that if you like. But we're creating the refuelling network that unlocks heavy transport. So this is high capacity focused on trucks and we can get a huge amount of coverage very, very easily. So four stations, for example, covers our North Island 100% of the freight routes. 
So you, you, you can unlock things very rapidly and size in a way is our friend. And so we're starting to see that the test bed concept, that's extending now to aviation, it's extending to maritime, um, where New Zealand can create these, these, if you like, test beds that are commercialisation test beds. So that's, that's really exciting. And uh, a lot's going on down, down south. We have ex- potentially excess renewable hydro for some large future export we're also looking closely in our region where we're, it's the energy sector that we're based in, uh, which has been traditionally an oil and gas sector. We're, we're transitioning away from that. The government's put some, some um, limitations on further exploration on, on oil and gas. And so there's a transition underway already. We're very much part of that. Um, but the region's also got great wind resource and incredible wind resource. And so... Already we're starting to think and look at the scale and what would it take, use the skills of the region to create, you know, green chemicals, create green ammonia, create, create green, uh, green methanol, create green hydrogen to start to export that as well. So, look, we are sitting in a very lucky country here. Um, there's a lot of work to do. We can't do it alone. But, yeah, it's, it's, it is a pretty exciting scenario here to... To, to leverage ourselves as a company, our country, our partners, but also the world starting to see, hey, this could be a good place to get some things, get some things moving. Yeah, and Andrew, I think you, you, you've put your finger on quite a lot of, of potential things there. And I think, frankly, I want to jump into the potential for, for exporting uh, energy in the form of, of hydrogen at some point. But we do have a list that we promised we would get through. So. One of, so I think what we'll go where we'll go here is we'll take you up on your invitation here to talk about Hyringa's process for developing a nationwide uh, fueling infrastructure. Let's start there, and then we can jump into the, all the other potentials as well. Yeah, so we we identified quite early that you know, heavy transport is a key sector, both because you can line up uh, big impact on emissions. You know, one one line haul truck is equivalent to taking 150 cars off the road, for example. So you just have this high impact area. At the same time, you can drive volume to help underpin refueling uh, infrastructure investments. So both you can have a carb decarbonisation impact together with a material commercialisation uh, benefit so to help accelerate that commercialisation because hydrogen, as is, is many know, needs scale, needs scale to get an economy of scale. And so we looked at that and identified that heavy transport sector. We saw that... Certainly, obviously, areas such as California, you know, even Aberdeen, London had started to go down the, the bus route, which is, which is great. And it's very, it again, drives a heavy use case. It drives known fleets and so on. Um, and we were starting to build a model a, a, along those lines, knowing that the big game was going to be trucks. But then we started to see the trucks really accelerate. And so we took the step back and said, right, plotting out where these heavy vehicles might become available over time, where are they being used? So we analysed that. Again, we had this wonderful data set of the whole of New Zealand to say we identified where are all the forklifts, where are all the trucks, where are all the buses, and understand that market. And so built geospatial tools on that. The you know the, the smart millennials in our team came out with all sorts of ideas that, that, uh, that I myself said just do a spreadsheet. You know, that's, that's that's what you we use millennials around here for as well, Andrew. I, exactly. I assure you. Just imagine we've never got there if they listened to me. But <laughs> but but yeah, we sat there and we looked at that market driven. Where is the market? And started to plan. And and we also then said, what well, what are the factors that are going to drive this? I mentioned economy of scale is going to drive it. Now that economy of scale is in several areas. I need volume, so I need throughput, so I need to be where I'm going to get throughput now and throughput later. So that's picking where you have the stations. To drive economy of scale, I need low-cost hydrogen. So how am I going to get that molecule cheap? So I need to understand what's the trade-off. Am I making the molecule where I'm selling it or am I making it somewhere else and moving it? And what are the factors that influence that? So, again, we used our geospatial tools to understand our renewable resources across the country, the infrastructure costs, the cost of moving the molecule or moving the electron and understanding those market drivers. So that exercise <clears throat> helped us really refine what we needed to do. But then I think the third thing was looking at the equipment itself. So there's a high cost of infrastructure. So any 
any dollar I spend in building hydrogen infrastructure needs to be a focused dollar. So we stripped it right back and said, what does heavy transport really need? Does it need all the singing, all the dancing, all the pressures, all the things trying to be everything for everyone? Or if we're focusing on heavy transport, what does that need? And we identified the, the, the fueling behaviours that heavy transport would need, the volumes it would need, the pace, the um, pressures it would need in our country because of the, the distances that we need to cover. And it let us really narrow down on what the functional specification needed to be for the equipment and strip out extra, extra bits. And then the next thing was, well, if I've got a bus fleet, for example, uh, that's needing to run 10 buses uh, or 20 buses or 30 buses, they need security supply. Now, if you're just doing one bus station, you're going to need to have double electrolyzers, double compressor systems, etc. The redundancy, that costs money. How can I create that same redundancy another way without spending superfluous money on the kit? And that's when the network effect comes in. So straight away, we started to say, well, let's go and start to actually don't just build one station, build a network from the start. And what does that minimum network look like? And what's it need to do? It needs to deliver high rate hydrogen. It needs to be able to deliver that safely. It needs to deliver it to a certain pressure. It needs to be able to be online and be reliable. And it needs to be pure, etc., etc. So when you narrowed that down, we analysed, okay, where are these stations, what's it look like, and what does the minimum network look like? So we're going straight with a, a, a network. The first four stations are being constructed as we speak, and um, and there's a continuous rollout that effectively now you've, if you like, broken the back of that, of that network commitment. The barrier now for future expansion is much lower. What it's also done um, by going down the uh, trucking pathway, for example, now with the trucks accelerating, We've actually built the stations on the back of the truck leases and so on. So that has lowered the barrier for regional adoption of vehicles. You know, you don't need to say to a council that's running a bus fleet, you know, I need you to buy 20, 30 buses straight away. You know, we can we can introduce five buses, three buses, if you like, into that into that network because it's already underpinned by the commercial trucking scale. So that approach has really um, unlocked the scenario, uh, unlocked the, the business model. There's a lot of work between those first thoughts with the geospatial tool, which we use heavily still all the way you know, to, to make these decisions. And again, having made those decisions about what the, you know, are we making it centrally? Are we making it distributed? Just by the way, the answer is yes. And, and so you end up with a network that we can then start to build on, expand upon, and uh, and introduce more vehicles. So that, look, that's the approach we've taken. It's um, it's set for for I think quite rapid acceleration. We can see the models repeatable. And I guess one, there's two other elements to the if you like the there's if you like a technical secret source, but there's also a business secret source. And the business, I, I truly believe, the business secret source is that you find those true partners and and you work closely with them, and you find that alignment. And one of the things that one of the challenges is that we naturally want to go to a conventional business model. We want to go to a vertical value chain and, and, and someone has the energy here and they're distributing, distributing it down here. And there's a market that's just this deep market. Well, the mark that there's no point in producing a molecule if you don't have a market. So that means they're super important. There's no, there's no market without the technology for the market. So that means they're super important. You need to really work through and not think like this vertical pyramid, but just think like a, a link value chain that, in fact, probably is going to, before we know it, fully connect into a daisy chain. So, so I think the that model is very much a a different way of doing business. Uh, a lot of open book discussions, um, and yeah, it's interesting. The it's not about how big you are; it's about how well you work with others. So, so speaking of working with others, uh, you've got a, a joint venture with with uh, Balance Agri Nutrients Nutrients uh, for uh, an ammonia urea plant. You know, I suppose when people people hear that uh, ammonia urea, you know, typically a, a fertilizer kind of precursor, is is that going to be a domestic uh, use case, or or is this part of the export strategy? So, New Zealand is an agri economy, and and it is a is like. 
many or well, all agri-economies, I would argue, is a heavy user of, of ammonia urea fertilizer or, or derivatives thereof. And so at the moment, there's an existing market. And there's also the New Zealand domestic production is, I think, only about a third of the domestic consumption. So two-thirds or at least around 60% is imported. And so one of the ideas was we've got, there is a limitation in the amount of gas resource available in New Zealand as well, just looking at it pragmatically. And so how do you continue to produce uh, fertiliser when when you use, when you need it in your country's uh, agri-system? So then it starts to say, well, what's green fertiliser look like? The beauty is that we straight away are offsetting imports. And so it's rather than backing out the existing production, we're actually incrementally adding production, off, offsetting imports. So I would say that there's a there's an opportunity there in that product, and that's what Balance, our partner, sees. They are an agri-nutrients company. That's their business, and they're at the moment having to import urea from, from you know, made from coal in many places and natural gas, certainly. So they're looking to green up their product and also offset the imports at the same time. Over time, they will be looking, no doubt, at more and more of the green version of their product. And so there is a domestic growth market purely along that pathway, but then we take the step back and think about ammonia. So ammonia is the easiest of these, if you like, hydrogen carriers to synthesise. So it's um, so the, the barrier to producing green ammonia is quite low uh, in terms of technology barriers and so on. And and the commercial barriers are not actually that extreme. So very, there's very, very much, a, if you like, a line of sight to commercial uh, green ammonia, both in the domestic case, where, which might be for as, as a hydrogen carrier for storage for use in you know, potentially um, marine or in, in power and so on, uh, but also then as an export, one of the options for export medium. So the two go together, the couple. So the coupling of uh, renewable energy uh, development with domestic uh, both power and and, and uh, molecule offtake, if you like, combined with uh, scaling that up to also have the export is is a very easy sort of pathway that you can start to map if you're in the right place. And again, those partnerships are key. You know, we we as a company, our, our gig is the the renewable electricity through to the hydrogen production, compression, and and so on. Our partners expertise is in operating ammonia plants so um while we're producing the hydrogen that will feed into their plants as we scale up if there's green ammonia production they're the natural partner to be doing to be doing that so again the partnership model comes through strongly there and andrew so obviously Haringa has their has their fingers in a lot of pies if it were so to speak and uh, so as a developer of production infrastructure and offtake markets so you know curious to know what is proving currently to be the biggest challenge <laughs> and i guess that comes with also the biggest opportunity question on on the on the yeah. flip side um and how would you guys go about uh, making that analysis yeah so look i think and and i'll be very interested i think probably the challenges we're seeing are common um and certainly common from the discussions i've had with the industry globally um the first thing is fossil fuels are just getting cheaper at the moment you know so what we are trying to do is displace fossil fuels and displace the emissions from fossil fuels in particular. Number one is displace emissions from fossil fuels and, and number two is, is displace those fossil fuels. Um, that's a challenge because at the end of the day, those fossil fuels, they aren't really, as we know, really paying all the externalities. But And that's a common thing and, the, and people say and often the fossil fuel industry say, oh, just add, just add carbon tax or carbon price to it. The issue is fossil fuels have not paid their back taxes. They have got an economy of scale that is second to none. And so it's not just the now externality price points. It's actually the fact that there's an economy of scale that for us to compete on an even playing field, we need to create a similar economy of scale. How do we do that in the time frame needed? So, And how do we do that to be backed financially? Uh, to grow at the pace that we need. So there's the challenge. Now, probably a good example is, is how we've been tackling it. And, and, and I think this is a general pattern. Both our projects I've described. So the, the refueling network 
and the uh, the uh, wind to hydrogen and ammonia project, they're both creating um, commercial models. So, in other words, we've got the government assistance, but it's it's, it's as debt. It's it's as a low interest uh, loan, and that low interest loan is not that dissimilar from what the infrastructure companies are achieving. So, even though the government's stepping in, what they're doing is effectively helping us construct commercial models, not just a subsidisation. And that sort of method is is vital because over time the government can step out and the banks step in. In the in the wind uh, to hydrogen and ammonia project, the Kapuni project as we call it, that's already attracted bank debt. So that's got a high level of gearing that the banks are seeing this. So there's a there's if you like the, the sort of an example of the opportunity we can touch on. So that to me is that challenge. How do we compete at the pace that we need to to establish these these larger models and the scale up. The other, the other thing is, at the end of the day, we're doing projects in a world that's not just doing the projects we're doing. Is we're seeing commodity prices go up. So just over the last twelve months, uh, steel, aluminium, resins, uh, copper, shipping have all gone astronomically high. And so the challenge is we're competing with the general commodity market and having to even though we're creating scale, the pace that we're creating scale and economies of scale, the cost of that equipment is going up. So that's something that whether it's cyclic or whether it's a mega trend because of the amount of activity that's going on, that's something we're very conscious of and we're seeing. So luckily, again, having the right partners, having the right funders, we analyse this, we understand this, we, we manage our calls, we, we look to hedge where we can. But that's a challenge that the, as we start to build up and scale up, the industry is going to have to face. Now, there are other ways to counter that where big companies are doing pretty are doing some pretty bold moves to manage their supply chains, but those core commodities do impact. That's, that's certainly a challenge we're seeing. Um, probably the third big challenge I would say is analysis paralysis. So governments and companies and Think tanks like to analyse. Um, our countries are particularly uh, our countries are particularly good at that. Um, and so, oh, which is yeah, what's going to be the solution? Oh, what's going to be the perfect one over here? We we actually two things. One, we don't have time to do that analysis paralysis, and B, you're looking for a false answer because there is not one answer on these solutions. There's there's just a there's a range of tools, and they all need to find right now they need to find their strongest business cases to get going that's those strong business cases are very clear like i've described where we're where we're going and, and likewise where batteries business cases are likewise where biofuels business cases are legacy fleets these sort of things so they're the areas that we need to focus on but let's stop analyzing that and let's instead work out how we how we unlock it now another that the danger is you go too much the other way as well, which I think is a challenge. It, it's the it's the uh, the hype problem, and so everyone just piles in and says, "Right, I want to build an electrolyzer. Now I'm going to build an electrolyzer. Now I'm going to build an electro because I want to I want to control my my fuel." Um, and so you get, if you like, these very linear um, uh, mono, if you like, mono solution thinking going on. That's kind of the opposite because actually. We know that you need the systems to unlock this. Um, it, it isn't just a linear play. And so, but we know that, but it, it, it's one of those challenges. How do we get everyone just piling in, even to the point I've seen, you know, I've seen uh, internationally companies just going out to tender for an electrolyzer. You know, we aren't at the stage we're just tendering for the electrolyzer as a solution if you just think you want an electrolyzer because we need to be able to create these viable commercial models. So I'm not saying you don't buy electrolyzers, but you, you, you approach it in a different way. It's about very much that system level thinking, multiple parties and, and following through, if you like, with plan to learn, you know, why are we doing this? What are we wanting to learn from this? Are we commercial? We're, oh, we're not. Okay, can we get commercial now? What are the things that are going to get us commercial? Yeah, there are always, you know, I, I think it's a, a, you know, a fantastic analysis of, of, of what we're facing. I think not just, not just Haringa, but the, the hydrogen market in general. And um, so, Andrew, with that in mind, I think 
you know, this is, uh, this is, we are conscious of your time and we are conscious of, uh, of the, uh, you know, the commitment you've made to, to uh, spend some time with us on the show today. So wanted to just close out and let, let you kind of take us out with what, uh, you know, what is next for hiring for Haringa? What is your guys next big play? Yeah, look, I think really what next for us is, is, is also a good way to answer the what are the opportunities. So the obvious thing for our company is to double down and, and leverage what we've done. So we've established our first projects that are at a commercial scale. They've got commercial business models around them, commercial funding models around them, um, and it lowers the barrier for us to grow. It lowers the barrier for our partners to adopt their, to take on their ambitions. So the first thing is really establishing, obviously, major focus on getting our, our network and our, our wind farm and all that on, online. So the next uh, 12 to 18 months is a, is a busy time. The, the team is really up for it and, uh, and and really excited about it. You know, it's pretty pretty amazing opportunity they've got to go out and create some of these some of these first types of projects of this scale. So executing that well, executing it safely, executing it. Um, cost effectively and executing it on time that's the first thing but from that you can build so from that you can you can increase incrementally the the market the opportunity can lower the barrier for adoption so we're working heavily right across New Zealand for the continued rollout Uh, we've got some exciting stations being planned and that will be going in for uh, consent and so on. And, again, there's partners everywhere we go. We're working with the region. So that increasing um, model of a, of, a, of a distributed energy resource and distributed hydrogen resource is, is very much part of our play. So there's that incremental daisy chaining, if you like. That's uh, kind of business as usual, to be honest, but working with the regions in New Zealand to do that. We also see, though, the model that we're doing, which which does fully integrate all these elements into data systems into um, sort of optimization models and so on, the geospatial tools, making those more dynamic, that creates a very repeatable model. Even the network and the station designs and so on, how we're putting the vendor's technology together in a, in a, in a way to be really cost-effective and efficient, that's a very repeatable model. So we're, so we're looking at other markets and how can we leverage what we're doing here to accelerate uh, hydrogen adoption in other markets. So Australia being uh, an obvious market next to New Zealand, but also we're seeing into into Asia and we're getting a lot of interest where we, we're, we're unlikely to be the operator in a, one of these other markets, but how can we partner in and help provide our know-how and skill to help that accelerate and help establish these sort of ecosystems and be part of just helping establish these sort of ecosystems elsewhere. So that's that that near term uh, execute leveraging that to grow domestically leveraging that to um, to ha- help these other markets and introduce into these other near term markets like Australia and then longer so we're really looking forward to that and we've already established our Australian business that for example our team over there that's that's working hard on 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 solutions there and look there is this long term play of of export that I think we all can't ignore. And that's not that you just look at the export pieces, but basically not every country has this this renewable energy benefit that New Zealand has. Many do when they start to look, though. That's a really interesting thing as well is I'm very encouraged by with the lower co- lowering cost of renewables coupled with technologies like hydrogen and battery storage, what you can do with renewables is very exciting going forward. And so countries that maybe hadn't seen that they are renewable powerhouses can, in fact, maybe increase their own domestic energy uh, energy generation. However, there's still going to be a, a, a gap. And so countries such as New Zealand can help do that. And that's whether or not we're exporting hydrogen molecules as a pure energy play or whether it is actually that we're making green, green molecules for industrial chemicals and so on and exporting those. So... Look, we're really excited by that. The area that we're based in is it's the heartland. It's, it's got petrochemical production, it's got methanol production, ammonia production, resin production. All of that's happening within probably five, ten kilometres of where I'm sitting right now. And so how can we green that up and, and create the new types of export models for green countries such as New Zealand to be able to lead and provide those chemicals to the world? So, yeah, I'm, I'm really pumped by that. Um, the part that Haringa has, you know, whether we're involved directly as as 
investors, whether we're involved directly as operators, developers, or whether we're just providing some thoughts and, and guidance and, and, and an offtake, you know, really that it can be any of those things because anything we can do to help drive this change. Well, I think that's an absolutely perfect way to leave it, Andrew. So we will uh, we will let your words speak for themselves and really, really do appreciate the time. It's really a fantastic conversation and uh, can't wait to see uh, what Hyringa brings us in the coming years. Great. Thanks so much, Andrew. And thanks, Patrick. This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. Biogas, Biotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Biotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Biotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit biotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. Okay, guys. So you had a chance to catch up with uh, my friends from uh, Hiringer and uh, obviously very jealous, um, not just of New Zealand, which is a pretty amazing place, but um, also that you got a chance to talk to them and, and learn a little bit about their model. Patrick, what were your key takeaways from the discussion? Yeah, I think I think the, the kind of real kind of uh, standout one is, you know, we, we hear about national hydrogen strategies and whatnot and usually at a governmental level but but Hyringa seemed to be really quite involved in, in in all the spaces right between the the fueling kind of strategy and rollout you know obviously they're doing the um the fertilizer or the sorry the green ammonia projects and whatnot it's it's just um it's quite an interesting kind of dynamic for a company to be kind of in a lot of these spaces but a really, a really kind of uh, forward-looking plan. Some of the, I, I suppose, the dynamics of being an island nation as well, kind of coming to play, similar to what we've seen in Scotland. Just, just overall, seeing the dynamism of of the deployment strategy is is pretty uh, was pretty cool. And Andrew, putting you back on the spot, what do you make of it? Um, yeah, I think similarly. I mean, it's interesting to see a, a company that's going to try and tackle several different components of the entire hydrogen economy all at one time, right? I mean, that's a pretty dramatic play. I, I, I agree with Patrick that that dynamic is probably only possible to start, although there are other companies that we've seen try this in other markets, but in sort of the island nation setup with, uh, you know, a significant renewable energy resources accessible to them. I suppose, you know, so New Zealand is kind of quite well primed for that. And if they overproduce, they have nearby uh, offtake cust- uh, offtake partners. If they underproduce, well, you know, there's some battery electric solutions that could probably be fit in, things like that. So I think it's super interesting. And it's also, you know, it's also uh, not that this doesn't necessarily go hand in hand in other markets, but this is a, where Hyringa is based. And I forget the exact town, but uh, is a oil and gas hub, right? So, you know, this is an interesting phase of the energy transition and a, and a pretty big uh, jump. And I think uh, Hyringa's founders are from that space, from the oil and gas space, right? And they were seeing, in their words, not so much commitment to decarbonization at the at the upper levels in, in their previous jobs. And so this is their move and they're calling their bluff. And I think uh, it's particularly interesting that they've taken such a, a big picture approach to it from day one so it's a special company well look i mean it's interesting isn't it i mean you know if you look at um australia and you look at infinite blue energy which is another company that's in some ways quite similar it's also ex oil and gas um experts who've come in right um you know and i think there is a sort of there's a recognition that those skill sets are very valuable for hydrogen right i mean you know if we all talk about a company like nanosun in the uk a lot of the guys there are ex boc right so there is you know to to make the green hydrogen side of this work which is what herringer focus on you're going to need a lot of these oil and gas experts frankly who you know have that sort of uh, skill set to be able to bring that across into the energy transition and that's a good thing too because then that's creating a you know a nice transition for people to move from one to the other so i think that works quite well i mean well, it's, that's, it's, that's even no no go ahead i'm sorry chris i didn't mean to interrupt that no please do i mean i guess new mexico has similar dynamics there too i was gonna right? say the, the the mutual the 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 circular value proposition for biotech in new mexico is similar right I and mean, that's we like to think we can make it we you know we can make even cleaner hydrogen than the electrolysis people can and 
but that uh, that oil and gas skill set, right? I mean, that's a that's what makes it attractive to New Mexico. That's what makes it attractive to Biotech to be there. So, sorry, I did not mean to interrupt you on that one. You were on a roll, Chris. No, no, you're good. No worries. I mean, the other thing, of course, is that you know people people are may be aware of this area. Um, you also have uh, investment from Mitsui. Um, you know, it, it is important and interesting to kind of note, um, you know, in my mind that you're sort of seeing these Japanese trading houses starting to get involved. I mean, you know, if, if I look at um, Europe, Trafigura, which is one of the sort of famous European trading houses, is invested in a uh, Swiss developer um, for sort of looking at hydrogen for trucks, right? Uh, and you're seeing quite a few of the big commodity trading houses, you know, and the Japanese are very famous at doing this, but, you know, you're also seeing quite a lot of the European ones sort of saying, well, what's our scope in hydrogen? What's our space in our play? Where do we fit in this? So, you know, it is quite interesting to me because, you know, New Zealand is not a massive market. There's not a lot of people. Um, you know, there's not a lot of heavy industry there. There is some, but not a lot. So, and I guess that's the interesting. Lots of sheep, man. There are, I mean, but but the, but it's not a trivial thing to kind of consider, right, in terms of market access, because there's not a lot of skill sets. People know each other very well, so in a sense, it's kind of an interesting one because you can you can very quickly become the preeminent dominant company in a market, um, and there's not a lot of natural competition because there's just some very obvious constraints, you know, in terms of the size of the market and in terms of the resources, human resources, especially you can access. Um, but that also creates its own set of challenges too, right? Which is that it isn't a big market. So how do you scale? So, <clears throat> you know, where the future markets then are for them, where, where, where you go with that, you know, Australia is an obvious one, right? I guess if you were looking at it from, you know, hearing aside and there's, there's opportunities there for sure. But, you know, then then sort of making those next leaps is going to be harder. Um, you know, and I think it's a theme we haven't really talked about yet, but I think we are definitely going to see, which is that there's a lot of um, hydrogen plays. Protein is, is obviously one of those that are popping up in different markets. And at some point, there probably will be a phase of consolidation. We just haven't really seen it yet. I mean, we've seen people like Plug go out and buy a lot of companies quite aggressively, for sure. Um, you know, uh, we've also seen a couple of announcements like um, Ballard have just acquired Arcola Energy which is quite interesting, right? So it's moving um, Ballard into the the vehicle side via the fuel cell, which, you know, actually in some ways the Heisen guys sort of pioneered, right? And, you know, Ballard seemed to be sort of following an hour some of the tactics saying we need to go further down the chain. So I, I think that would be quite interesting. You know, what do businesses like Haringa, they've got very well connected, very capable people, you know, very, very clear plan to execute in the market. They've got good exposure and they're thinking creatively about things, you know, where do they go from there? Do they end up becoming part of like a, you know, shell's global hydrogen team or do they stay independent you know do they list you know do they become the next generation of you know major energy companies within those markets um i i don't have a good steer on that yet but i think that's quite exciting to me and looking at commercialization as opposed to just technology is quite exciting and you know there aren't too many companies that managed to break through in a way that i think Haringa have so far obviously they still need to deliver as we all do um and putting units in the ground but you know um it, it, it is interesting I think I think this raises and an, you know to some degree you know the point is well made right like New Zealand is a it, domestically is likely a smaller market but still a valuable one as a as a foundation stone right to build a business and you know part of the the the, the approach here is is looking at exports or at least um, kind of exports oriented around you know hydrogen use right and and this is one of the questions we're going to have as as we kind of move into this next phase is what what is the shape of that initial market you know and chris very rightly you're you're speaking to you know kind of a consolidation within kind of project ownership or or you know people in a particular section of the market taking a, a kind of a more deliberate position like the ballard example being being a particularly good one i think but um you know what what is the future of the hydrogen market like in terms of operational area are we going to see these distributed production uh, kind of systems i see andrew smiling um really kind of drive in and dominate or or are we going to see these these huge export and import terminals starting to to build up and how do we how do we make that determination i think it i think it's my view of it is probably it's it's a little bit of both right but um i think especially if you're if you're uh if you're Haringa and you're, you're sitting where you are and you can build up this kind of framework of production, um, you've really got an interesting proposition about how you then talk about broadening and building out your market and what that future market looks like. So very interesting times for sure. Well, it, 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 people will probably laugh a little bit, but in my head, I kind of am thinking a little bit like um, the board game Risk, if you ever remember playing that, right? Where sort of there's always the question of, well, what do you set, you know, where do you set up a base? And there's always a certain 
risk school of thought which says australia and new zealand is really good because yes they're small markets and you don't get a lot of points but they're very hard to get into so if you can build a base that's generating you reliable income from there then it's a really good launch pad to go somewhere else if you fail you can always go back um you know and i don't know how well that analogy carries across but you know any small market you can dominate and have a very significant presence in does give you quite an exciting base whereas if you're trying to break a huge market like you know like europe if you're ever fuel or even the us right i mean it, there's just so many different people coming in and coming after you at the same time right um even giants like plug you know they had to announce a part well they announced a partnership recently with life which is a um french uh, hydrogen developer um you know in, in one level, you kind of go, well, why would you even bother doing that? You've got a fi- you've got $5 billion war chest. You've got a fantastic brand. Why would you partner with a very young, relatively small developer, right? I mean, and, and equally, why would the French developer do that? You know, if you've got an exciting team and you're raising money, why would you partner with someone like Plug? Um, but I think it is because in really big markets, you know, even the big guys realize they need to partner. Um, you know, Res did a similar announcement with Octopus Energy in the UK, which is also interesting to me because you've got Octopus Hydrogen that's now competing against Octopus Energy and and Res. So there's these kind of, it is kind of interesting. I sort of wonder whether actually, you know, again, looking at this kind of five, 10 year timeline, companies like Haringa that will be preeminent in those markets will oddly be better positioned to go because they've not had to fight these hugely attritional battles to go somewhere else. Um, you know, you see this sometimes in the tech field too, right? Where if you can really capture a single part of that market, you can work your way slowly up into other areas. You've got that sort of constant fallback of, well, this is my home base and it's very hard to dislodge me from that. Um, so I, I think that's exciting. It's also exciting and final one for me on this one is that Hiringa also used quite a bit of digital. You know, I think that, you know, we're starting to see that um, the development side of businesses is getting smarter. Um, and there's also gradually, after a very long time, more money going into the space. You know, I think there was a very short-sighted take, which was unless you had some sort of unique proprietary IP, um, you know, you just didn't invest into commercialization businesses. And I think we're realizing that's a massive mistake. And, you know, companies like Haringa are good examples of that. You know, Life, hopefully Proteum, and a couple of others are all trying to do this sort of thing too. But, you know, um, it, the fact that, you know, companies like HTech are going out and raising what have they raised now? 200 million Canadian in 12 months by my last count. You know, and Everfuel raised 80 million euros in, yeah, again, about a 12 month period, you know, suggests that, you know, there's a huge amount of appetite for businesses like Hiringer and what they do. Um, and, you know, they've got some quite neat technology around GIS mapping and around how they look at vehicles and segments, which, you know, classic developers are kind of, you know, four to six people bands, right? There's not usually a lot of very sophisticated analytics going on because, frankly, that's expensive, right? And actually what you're focused on is getting a site, getting planning and permitting and a grid connection. That's that's what you're meant to do. Whereas the next generation of the energy transition businesses are, have to be smarter. Uh, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean that what they're trying to do is just infinitely more complicated. Offtake is more complicated. The number of different bits that need to be permitted is more complicated. Figuring out where you put it is more complicated. And of course, there still aren't price support mechanisms for a lot of things, right? So it's not as though put it into the grid, get a grid connection, get a feed and tariff, away you go. That doesn't exist. So you've got to build all that other piece together. All right. Well, we don't have much time left, guys, but uh, let's see. This is Sunday morning. So something relatively big came out of COP this week. Uh, you guys want to talk about your reactions? What do you think? Sum up. Do you guys want to summarize COP for me in 30 seconds each? Off to the races. Patrick, you start. <laughs> I'm kidding on the 30 seconds, but seriously, don't don't take on Yeah, look, look, I guess we've got an agreement, right? That's a good start. Um, no, look, like, I think overall we've had... We've had a quite a few few pieces of good news throughout it, right? From a hydrogen standpoint, um, but also, you know, obviously the, there's a very kind of direct deal there with your know, compact on with US and China, but there there is now you know kind of a broader agreement um, and a kind of a targeted, I think, phase down particularly of coal, which is good. I think you know there's probably probably a few bits that people would have liked a little bit more on and uh, a few bits that people would have liked a little bit less. But I, I, like, look, we, we're going to have to see see how this rolls because the proof of the pudding's in the eating. Some good news, I think, on, on kind of, um, I think more particularly the kind of the, the methane uh, kind of emissions pledges. Um, I think there's, there's probably a, a little bit around kind of deforestation as well and stuff like that. So like, look, I think there's a lot here, but we've seen this before. Now's, now's the moment for action. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, Chris, given that you're in the country and maybe have a better sense of the mood on the ground. 
Yeah, look, I mean, it, so step back. I mean, there's three big side agreements, right? Which are the sort of, I think, 100 countries signed up to the deforestation pledge, which was announced before COP. 40 odd countries signed up to a phase out of coal pledge, which again was agreed. I think another 40 odd signed up to the methane leakage pledges that you were discussing, Patrick, right? So those are the three side agreements that, I, that I'm aware got a lot of attention. And then there's the main agreement. Um, and then the main agreement itself has, for the first time in 30 years, in a UN document, a reference to um, reducing coal use, which was considered to be a big win. It wasn't the language people wanted. China and India, in the end, were able to win that down. I think a lot of people were not happy. And you know, there's videos of Alok Sharma quite visibly tear, well, visibly quite upset with the fact that they've had to they had to turn down the wording on that one. Um, clearly, a lot of people not very happy with it and how it's landed. Um, but, you know, I think if you listen to Franz Timmerman give a speech to the EU um, sort of negotiator on, on a lot of this um, at COP and said, you know, uh, this is sort of materially better than where we were. It's much better than many people thought we might actually land at the end of this. You know, it is 190 or countries signing off on something that does complete, at least as I understand it, the rule book um, on um, how we're going to deliver parts of Paris, right? And the big one, I think, as well, was on the certification of CO2. So for the first time, there's the there's a UN framework around how you how you're allowed to do carbon trading, basically how you're allowed to measure carbon to then do carbon trading. Um, this may not go any further, but I mean, I certainly think it was much better than people had sort of expected, um, which is which is nice, and I think is is something to be taken as quite serious. Um, yeah, and of course there is another climate event next year. There will be COP again next year, and, and maybe a final reflection on this from my side. Um, people are talking about COP. I don't remember people ever really talking about COP when I was growing up. And this is the 26th one. Right? It's meant to be the 27th, right? So the fact that people are talking about it and are very aware about it is a hugely positive thing. you know. And I think there has definitely been a sense from industry and from investors and even civil society that we just have to do more. Um, and that has to be a positive thing. And I think people are probably realizing from COP that politicians aren't going to be able to do this on their own. There's going to have to be pressure from elsewhere that's going to make the dial move. Um, you know, and I think that is in itself a good thing, um, you know, on to next year. And hopefully, you know, we'll get a little bit closer to that elusive 1.5 degrees of commitments. Um, I think as of today, we're at 2.4 was the latest that I saw if we stay on current track. So um, probably better than where we were 10 years ago, better than I think we thought we might be in the summer, but um, still definitely a lot left to do. Perfect. Well, guys, excellent place to end it. This has been a good one and uh, we'll see you next time. And that does it for us today on Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Andrew Clinnett, co-founder and CEO of Hiringa Energy, for joining us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.